Okay, this is the sermon I promised I would never preach. I've been asked multiple times, Tim, preach on this, and I've always said no. But Duffy came to me a few weeks ago and he said, boy, I just really think we need to preach on this. <laughs> okay. Obviously, you know the way I approach this. I've read two books and found somebody to talk to. My dear, dear friend, Dr. Betty Hart, retired uh, professor from University of Southern Indiana over in Evansville, um, a black woman in the culture that uh, has lived everything that we're talking about, very dear friend of mine, I called her up and I said, you and my youth director and myself need to have dinner because we are going to preach on racism. And so we went out and we had a dinner that lasted about two and a half, almost three hours. And she is the one person in this world, a uh, person of color, that I can say anything I need to say to and say, now tell me where I'm an idiot and trust that she will tell me. And she did. Because the first question I asked her was, okay, Betty, I'm so confused. Will you please tell me what I'm supposed to call you anymore? <laughs> Anybody else confused? Am I the only one in culture that cannot keep up with how I am supposed to address my friends of color? Because, boy, I've had to do in my 57 years some real gymnastics verbally on this. I said... I've always addressed you as African-American. Is that what I'm supposed to do? And she said, Tim, am I from Africa? And I said, no, you're from Mount Vernon. I said, and before that, it was West Virginia. She said, yeah, I come from the coal mines of West Virginia. She said, I've been to Africa, but I am not an African-American. I said, well, then please tell me. She said, I'm black. She said, I'm a black person. She said, you're a white person. She said, let me tell you what you can't call me. And I can't tell you that. She could. <laughs> so if you want to know, I can write that down for you in my office, I guess. Or we can communicate that maybe by sign language. The point I'm making is I'm starting at ground zero trying to figure out how to even have a conversation about something like racism in a nation right now where people are rioting in the streets. And we can't talk to each other about it. And so I take the best person I know how to and the first thing I have to admit to her, a, one of my dearest friends in the world is, I don't even know what to call you. So she had given me a couple books because I called her before the dinner and I said, I can't come to this unprepared. And so she, she already had the books. She knew what I needed. And so she gave me two books. If you want to know what those books are, I'll be, happy to, um, I'll be happy to share them with you. It's not really important this morning that you get those. But here's what I do. 
Here's what I do want to share with you for my part of this, because Duffy's going to come up in just a couple minutes, and he's going to pull this together for us. I want to give you, after my dinner with Betty, with Dr. Hart, I want to give you my working definition of racism. John, if you could put that up on the screen for us. Racism. Racism is where the dominant culture assumes power and privilege. Now, I'm going to leave that up there here as I talk about this, because I want you to consider that. Has anybody other than me ever wondered how you define racism? I have. Forever. I am, I am sitting here at 57 years of age with the unique experience of having been a teenager in the 1970s during the first race riots in this nation, and I'm watching them again at 57 now. I was young enough that I was experiencing it young, so it had a huge impact on my life. I am not so old that I am dismissing this at this point in my life and basically saying, uh, I'm taking it serious at both points in my life. I should have gotten the idea that, that we were entering this stage again when I started seeing kids buying pet rocks again. Anybody that grew up in the 1970s knows what I'm talking about, man, because they sold us pet rocks back then. Somebody made money on that, and they're doing it again. The 70s weren't the good old days, just like the 50s weren't the good old days. The 70s were filled with riots. The 70s were filled with parks that there was, there was uh, unfettered drug use, where needles littered the ground. Sound familiar? We're there again. Maybe 40 years later, but we're there again. The young people of the 70s had to figure out what it meant to live together in a nation of different races and cultures. And the young people and the older people of 2020 are having to figure it out again. Racism. As I came out of the meeting and after reading these two books, this is the best I can do, and Betty didn't hit me upside the head. Where the dominant culture assumes power and privilege. You could take race off of the beginning of that ism, and you could put gender or sex in there. And I could say to you, sexism is when the dominant sex assumes power and privilege. And so we had, for a long time, the male gender assuming power and privilege. And we had to do things like make sure that women had an equal voice. The gender of the female had an equal voice in our nation. And I know we're still battling that. You could put any kind of, you could put age in there. And we could have ageism. And that would be where the dominant age of a culture assumes power and privilege. And we could have conversations about any of those. Do you understand? I had to have a working definition for what it means for discrimination, oppression, and the use of power by one group 
whether it's by age, whether it's by race, whether it's by gender, you fill in the blank that we need to have a conversation about. I need to have a working definition to have that conversation. And the definition I have for racism is when the dominant culture... Now, what is the dominant culture in America? There is no doubt about this. It is the white culture. We are the dominant culture. So I don't have any problem. And when I say dominant culture, I mean, are there more white people descended from European stock in the United States of America than anybody else? And the answer to that, by any statistics you can use right now, is yes, there are. Now, the question becomes, is the dominant culture, is the white culture, assuming power and privilege? Now, we can talk about that all day long. I don't, I don't have the answer. What I do have after reading the books that I've read and having the conversations that I've had is I have one biblical narrative that I want to kick this off with and let Duffy come in and maybe hit a home run. The biblical narrative that I want to use is the biblical narrative of a boy named Joseph who was sold by his brothers. The biblical narrative of Joseph who was sold by his brothers as a slave into a dominant culture. The culture was Egypt. And the dominant culture of the day was the Egyptian culture. There were more Egyptians in Egypt than anybody else. Definition. I can have a conversation now. What did the dominant culture of Egypt do with this slave, Joseph? Track the story at the end of Genesis. I'm not going to tell you the whole story. Go and read the story. What I do want to tell you is that God was giving Pharaoh some dreams. They were struggling with what was coming. There was a famine that was coming. Joseph's going to get thrown in prison because he's good at what he does. And you, you read the story and you get some of that. Now we've got some gender stuff going on. We could have conversations about that. But... The bottom line is, Joseph comes out of prison because Pharaoh needs the gifts that Joseph has, which is, I'm having dreams and I don't know what to do with them. Is there anybody that can help me with this? And of course, his advisors say, we can't help you with this. The dominant culture can't help with the problem. But they say, we know somebody that can, and he's not an Egyptian. And Pharaoh says, go get him. Now, the dominant culture, the Egyptians, are they assuming power and privilege? You have a group of advisors that says, we can't answer this for you, but we know somebody that can. They have reached into their culture, and they have pulled somebody that's not from their culture, not from the dominant culture, up to a position where he gets to talk to Pharaoh. Do you understand that is the opposite of racism? That is not assuming power and privilege over somebody. That is taking somebody that does not have power and privilege and in fact is in prison and lifts them up to another position. And we know what happens. Pharaoh talks to him. Joseph's able to interpret the dreams because of God. And we get this scripture verse. It's printed in your bulletin. 
Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all of this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. It doesn't matter that Joseph is not Egyptian. There is no one as discerning and wise as you. And so you shall be over my house. Do you hear the biblical narrative of racism? The dominant culture and what it does with power and privilege. There is no one as discerning and wise as you. And you shall be over my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Do you hear the amazing cultural understanding that Pharaoh is putting forth here? Somebody that's not of the, uh, not of the dominant culture that has something that will make the dominant culture flourish is raised to a position to rule within that dominant culture. One, one biblical narrative about racism. Duffy's going to come up and talk to us about how this fits into our culture right now, and I pray for him as he does it, because that's not something I, I can have the conversation with you, but I can't give him a sermon on it. What I can do is I can leave you with two things before Duffy comes up. From our conversations... I ran this by Betty. And I said, Betty, would you be comfortable with this? It is the responsibility of the dominant culture to make room for all cultures. If you want to know what your responsibility, if you are a white European in this world, right now in the United States of America, if you want to know at least one thing that you can be responsible for as a part of the dominant culture in this nation, I say that one of those things you can do is you have the responsibility to make room for all cultures and to advance them, not control them. When the dominant culture has power and privilege... You have a responsibility to use that to advance all cultures within your country. Not to control those cultures. Now, if you're a part of the minority, this is where I was like, how's she going to take this one? You have the responsibility. You have the responsibility to live peacefully according to the biblical narrative. You have the responsibility to live peacefully and legally within that dominant culture, not to try to take it over. And Betty said, I'm very comfortable with that. You see, we're having a clash right now where the dominant culture in many ways has assumed power and privilege. And we can have those conversations. But we're having a situation in which that which is not the dominant culture is not living legally, and they're not living peacefully, and they're trying to take control of the culture. And those are all conversations that we can have, and believe me, we had those conversations at dinner. And there were a few times that Betty did smack me upside the head. Duffy, why don't you come on up? 
because Duffy is going to try to make sense of this in the current culture, and Duffy, good luck. Hey. Okay. <laughs> I've been back there doing this for like 20 minutes. It's like, okay, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Um, I just wanted, wanted to say, uh, first of all, that I truly appreciated the conversations that I had with Pastor Tim and Betty. Um, it was great. Just, just the eye-opening stuff that we talked about. And it's a difficult, difficult topic. And I'll tell you why it's a difficult topic. Um, everybody comes to this with their own experiences. Everybody comes to this with their own narrative. Okay. Um, and what I want to do over the next few minutes is, is kind of explain where my heart went with all of this because, and, and I love pastor Tim. Cause I was like, we got to talk about this. we got to talk about this. He's like, finally we did. And then I was like, man, I don't know if we should talk about this. You know, it's like, I was like, I don't know. What, what was I thinking? Um, but the favor that I want to ask of you is this, what I say today, I want you to listen to the entirety of it before anything. Okay, because I hope that by the time I get to the end of this, that you're going to see that what I did my best to do was represent the Christian narrative in all of this. And that was the word that kept coming to me as, as I, I felt the need to do this, felt the call to, to do this sermon, um, is the word narrative. I kept hearing, you know, everybody's pushing a narrative and this doesn't fit a narrative. Okay, so everybody do me a favor. Everybody say the word narrative. Okay, so... What I meant, I'm seeing this word, you know, I'm seeing all this stuff play out in front of me in uh, social media and news cycles and even personal conversations. And what I wanted to do, like I said, is give you the first, like my, what's on my heart with all of this. Uh, and my, my papa used to have a saying, if you can tell I'm nervous. My papa used to have a saying uh, when you were nervous or anxious about something. He said, well, let's go ahead and just kick this pig. Like, let's get it started. Let's go. So we are going to get started. Um, I want to set up some context for all of this. And then later on, I, I'm going to define uh, terms the way that I saw it. Okay, so first of all, what sparked the increased racial tension in our country was the death of George Floyd an unarmed black man who was killed by a Minneapolis, Minnesota police officer named Derek Chauvin, who is white. Officer Chauvin had George Floyd face down on the ground, knelt on his neck for over eight minutes. Floyd is heard in the video saying, I can't breathe. Floyd was later, later pronounced dead at the hospital. Now, to help you understand what I'm talking about when I say the word narrative, you have no idea how long I stared at those last four sentences that I just said about the death of George Floyd when I typed them. Because when you try to represent something factually without a narrative, it's hard. Okay? You have no idea how long I stared at that word death. What if I use the word murdered? Murdered implies something else. And if I would have said the alleged murder, then you would have been like, oh, well, you don't think he murdered him? So it's hard not to have a narrative. But words and facts matter. And as a Christian, we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And one of the big things I want you to get from this is that we need to avoid inflammatory rhetoric. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's an election year. OK, 
okay? So everything's inflamed. Everything sounds worse. So, and please hear what I'm saying about the, the whole passion thing. You, what you believe in, you should be absolutely passionate about. I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you, you know? But when we discuss things, we need to be rooted in reason, logic, and actual facts. When, I loved when Pastor Tim said, you know, we need to find the things that bind us, the things that we can rally around, the things that we can come together on. Um, and for the most part, we've watched the exact opposite of that unfold in front of us, in our country. And I'm, I'm talking to everybody here, okay? So regardless of where you get your information from, your news sources, or who you're having conversations with, I'm talking to you. So do me a favor, okay? Raise your hand if you've had any type of conversation about the racial tensions going on in our country with anyone, raise your hand. Yeah. Okay. Now, because there's a few things that I see today. Okay. Um, this idea of a narrative, when everyone's pushing it, okay, Every, everybody's got their own narrative they're trying to drive home. Facts should unite us, and most importantly, the narrative that really matters is the narrative of the narrator, okay, the Christian narrative. So, a couple of things. Everybody's pushing a narrative, facts should unite us, and we should care about the Christian narrative. So, here's what I want to do, okay, remember, listen to the whole message, okay. Depending on your source of information, I'm getting ready to spit a whole truckload of facts at you, so stay with me. Depending on your source of information, the people that you're allowing to speak into your understanding of all this, you might be led to believe that black people are shot and killed by police officers at a disproportionate rate than other races. Okay? That is not statistically accurate. According to, police, according to data compiled by the Washington Post in 2015, 50% of fatal police shootings were white while 26 were black. Percent were black. Now, if you're really paying attention, you'll say, well, wait a minute, Duffy. You know, like Pastor Tim said, we're predominantly a white country. We are, in fact, 62% white, 13% black. Okay? But, in, oh, okay. So, um, despite making up only 15% of the population in 75 of the largest counties in the country, Black people were responsible for 62% of robberies, 57% of murders, and 45% of assaults. That is 2019 data from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, and from what I gathered in searching, the numbers remain pretty constant. When it's all said and done, white and Hispanic people actually are killed at a higher rate. It's not about statistics. Okay? This is about the narrative that's being pushed at you. People are trying to inflame your beliefs one way or the other. As Christians, we need to focus on personal interactions and events, facts and details, reason and logic. Now, what that means is the narrative that matters is the narrative that's in this, okay? It's not the one you're getting from the news or anywhere else for anyone you're talking to. Um, you might be hearing the other side of the narrative. Okay, again, depending on your news source, depending on who you're talking to, you might think that every protester out there is burning a cop car and throwing bricks and, and being violent and looting. They're not. There's a lot of peaceful protests going on. Okay, I, I love my job. I teach fifth grade. I get to teach the Constitution. We talk all about protesting and the power of protest. Okay? But there's a massive difference in coverage between the violence in protests and the peaceful protest. Again, 
you're being shown a narrative. When there are people on both sides of the spectrum screaming worst case scenarios, then it's difficult to come together and have a conversation. What I say when I mean the facts should unite, or what I mean when I say the facts should unite us, we should be able to gather around this truth. We should be able to, without hurling generalities at each other. Because if you really listen, and this is, this is what I do, and I know it annoys people, and I'm sorry, it's just how I was made. When people are talking, I am consistently always looking at how general they're being in their words. Are you giving me specific examples or are you just saying those folks? Okay. It's always like this. No, it's probably not. Okay. Be specific. So when I say that, <laughs> when I say that I don't like those vagaries and those generalities, uh, and I won't use any names, but there was a, a, a person I know that moved away from here. Uh, and they put a Facebook post that said that the area that they are from, this area, it, they said that the area that they were from, they referred to this area as racist. Now, we're not that racially diverse, you know, I'll give you that, but when you make a blanket statement like that, that's an inflammatory narrative. You're just trying to fire people up. Okay, talk to me about personal interactions. I have no doubt that this person experienced some type of racism while they were here. But to label a place, label an area, that's how we divide each other. Okay, um, Merriam Webster's defines racism as a belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacities, and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race or the governmental system that believes the same. Now, the thing that that person did, that generality, that just makes people angry. It made me angry when I read it, okay? But what happens is, you basically end up with a lot of folks out there that are angry, because they're frustrated, and that's, that's what's gonna happen when you get inflamed rhetoric on both sides. So what you really end up with are a bunch of people just kind of walking around like, you know, what do we do? What are, what's our role in this? What's our response? Okay. So we as Christians, this is the best that I could come up with. Okay. What should our response be? Um, if you want to go to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'll show you what I'm talking about, but it's probably not going to be in the way you anticipate. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him the, gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who had showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, you are probably pretty familiar with that story. But you know that the, the Samaritan being the good guy in that story is kind of weird, okay? Because Jews didn't interact with Samaritans. But I want to draw your attention to the question that the lawyer asked. When Jesus told the lawyer that he had to love the neighbor as himself, the lawyer responded with, who is my neighbor? But I think to really understand that, you have to look at what he was really asking. Who isn't my neighbor? He was trying to categorize, okay, okay, so who do I have to be nice to? Okay. The opposite side of that was, you know, who, I want to find out who I don't have to worry about as much. Okay. And the only way that I explain things in stories, and that's just how my brain works. Um, so let me, let me share this story with you to kind of illustrate that. When I was a youth leader at another church, we did uh, some mission work in a town called Cairo, Illinois. Okay. It's only about three, three hours from here. Uh, we did it through youth works. Cairo is a very interesting little place. Okay. It started out as a population of 18,000 with a booming steel industry. And at one point in time had the third highest per capita income in the entire country. Okay. Within a period of about three to four years, the industry left all the jobs left. It went from a population, I shouldn't say all, vast majority of the jobs left, went from 18,000, population of 18,000 to about 4,000 over those four years. Um, less than 50% graduation rate. Uh, it is a 98% black community. Um, it at one point was in the, I think, the top 10 highest murder rate in the country. 65% uh, of the residents there are fourth generation welfare. Crime is rampant, poverty the same. Um, it's a different place. So we took our youth group there and, and on the first trip I didn't go. Okay. I worked, I was working that summer and my wife went and the pastor went and my wife was doing a Bible study with the kids. We went there to do like home repair and, and Bible studies with the kids. And my wife was doing a Bible study with some of the kids in one of the houses in the community. Okay. And there is a lady there that came in to help because members of the community come in and help with the Bible studies and they interact with all of us. Well, while they're in this Bible study, shots ring out, gunshots, okay, down the street. It's obviously concern, okay? And my wife, God love my wife, was in there and, you know, everybody's upset and trying to figure out what they're doing and everything else. And one of the women from the community, okay, a, a black lady, looked at my wife and said, oh, honey, don't worry. They won't shoot you. You're white. That's a, that's a personal interaction. That breaks my heart to think that that lady in her personal narrative, through her situation, through whatever, you know, however she'd been conditioned to think or whatever the life she lived, she was led to believe that my wife was safer more valuable to others because of the color of her skin. Okay. We can't fix any of this screaming at the wind, listening to these narratives and inflaming them more. This gets fixed 
when we deal personally with personal interactions and personal stories and we fight for the things that we know are right, okay? Um, so I wanna close with this and, and sum it up. I believe that our response as Christians is to block out the inflammatory narratives, to embrace the facts and details of events and not deal in generalities. And at a personal level, with personal conversations and interactions, fight against any form of racial injustice. Because the bottom line is, we are all called to love our neighbors as ourselves.